and Niven Hazen, researcher at the Australia-China Relations Institute at the University of Technology, Sydney. Welcome to the ACRI podcast. This month marks three years since CHAFTA, the China-Australia Free Trade Agreement, entered into force. What is the significance of the agreement? What impact has CHAFTA had on Australian business? Has it aided their internationalisation and operation in the Chinese market? To discuss these issues, I'm joined by Tamara Oyas, a PhD candidate and sessional lecturer in international business at the University of Sydney. Born in Chile and raised in Japan, Tamara is a lawyer focused on corporate and business strategy with more than a decade of work and life experience in Australia, Chile and China. Tamara holds a Master in International Business and Law, focused in international business and Asian Chinese law and Chinese business from the University of Sydney. She is also a recipient of the Top Education Institute Scholarship. She is an experienced and awarded sessional lecturer and a doctoral researcher within the international business discipline of the University of Sydney Business School. Tamara's doctoral research project focuses on the Australia-China commercial relationship by investigating the impact that government-led policies, particularly the China-Australia Free Trade Agreement, have on firms' internationalisation behaviour. Welcome to the program, Tamara. Thank you, Simon. Pleasure to be here. So I might kick things off by asking you, why did you decide to focus your research on CHAFTA in particular? CHAFTA, as we know, the China-Australia Free Trade Agreement, is by far the most comprehensive free trade agreement that China has negotiated and agreed with with any of its business partners. It's also an agreement that is, we call a living agreement. It has inbuilt um, provisions around the revisions of this agreement. So what is in place today will be renegotiated, particularly in aspects of movement of people, investments, and so on. Now, the 20th of December 2015 marked the entry in force of this um, free trade agreement. And now, as you mentioned in the introduction, three years since will come into effect. And this is a period where revisiting what has happened, how firms and businesses have worked around CHAFTA and what are the impacts that are coming up is are going to be revisited. So it's quite an important um, date. We need to also think that China is our biggest trading partner on bilateral trade in excess of 184 billion Australian dollars is where our relationship stands at. And I was really interested in investigating how Australian firms in particular are reacting to the market access and the different avenues to do businesses, business with China that was opening with this institutional landscape. Now, CHAFTA comes on the background of a quite strong uh, bilateral relation that we already had with China coming from the 70s in diplomatic and commercial relations. And also the complementarity of our economies could make this free trade agreement particularly important, not only for our countries, but um, the Asia-Pacific region, and has been considered in the literature, in reports, and other governments as quite an agreement to look at, to look at the provisions and really look at the evolution and how it is coming into life for both countries. So that's where my interest in nested together with I had the opportunity to live and work in China for quite some time and being in between Australia and China, sort of insider, outsider perspective, I was really interested in looking at how this relationship unfolds, particularly from the Australian business perspective. 
Maybe for our listeners, could you briefly explain the purpose of a free trade agreement? So what are FTAs actually supposed to achieve? Sure. I would I would like to answer that following two kind of key points for what a free trade agreement on FTA actually is and what is the intended impact. So an FTA in very simple terms is an international treaty. It's governed it's governed by provisions that are negotiated at the government level. And from the macro government perspective, they are to influence the micro level perspective of the firm, which are the ones who will be the actors of the free trade or the freer trade provisions. So these international treaties establish frameworks and provisions that generally um, revolve around trade through reductions of tariffs of duties, which affects our exporters. Also about services, which is a more modern approach to free trade agreements provisions on investment and other layers of market access. Now, free trade agreements have proliferated in the last 20 years, which is a really interesting phenomenon to observe. Today, 236 free trades have been notified to the WTO, which is the governing international body that looks at international trade. And although the WTO focuses on the multilateral system, countries can actually negotiate this type of preferential system. So the free trade creates these preferential conditions, a specific framework that is only applied to the member countries. And the member countries will enact those through their firms. Now, what is the intended impact of free trade? If we look at the main aspects of free trade, Firstly, will be the opportunities that it opens for businesses, right? A reduction of transaction costs and uncertainty because this legal framework, which is binding, exists. Secondly, the reduction or elimination of tariffs. So our products will be more competitive for, um, in this case in Chafta, the Chinese importers who benefit from the reduced duty payable upon our goods land on Chinese um, uh, ports. Also, it reduces administrative distance. We know that some of the provision of CHAFTA are really towards facilitating doing business between Australia and China. Reduces also what we call the liability of foreigners or the cost of doing business abroad. It, it creates a framework of market access and preferential conditions. And also we could argue that it creates um, space for knowledge transfer and capability building for firms. So firms get involved in free trade, they develop new knowledge, they develop ways of behaving in the international market that are more comprehensive and impact not only the trade, but the reservoir of capabilities that the firms has. So it's a whole array of things that free trades are intended to, to create for the firms. If we think of Australia in particular, we're signatory to 10 free trade agreements, which are enforced to date, together with another five that to be uh, coming forth, one of them is TBP 11, which will be a really interesting free trade, um, regional trade agreement to follow, and another seven free trade agreements under negotiation. So although we are a relatively small economy, we're the 13th biggest um, by GDP worldwide, and we're very active players in the international economic, liberal and legal order of free trade agreements. Well, I might just follow up on that by asking you about Australia's free trade agreements with Japan and South Korea then. So what differentiates CHAFTA from the other two Asian free trade agreements with Japan and South Korea? What makes it unique? So CHAFTA is quite unique. I will go through a couple of reasons why that's the case. I will say a word or two on CAFTA or the Korean-Australian FTA. 
That one came into force on the 12th of December 2014 and marked the first of our free trade agreements with the North Asian economies, which are our biggest trade partners, uh, together with the United States. Now, South Korea is our largest, fourth largest trade partner, and the development in that specific free trade agreement revolved a lot around services. The South Korean economy is quite complex, it's very um, technology-driven, and we got a lot of provisions around services, uh, telecommunications, accounting, legal, and other key sectors where we have a market access that we didn't have before. Also, in the entry in force, 84% of Australian goods will enter Korea duty-free, and by full implementation, it will go up to 99.8%. Now, we... Japan, the Japan-Australia Economic Partnership Agreement that came in force a bit earlier before than Chafta on the 15th of January 2015. Japan is our second largest trade partner and the fourth largest source of FDI. For Japan, the provisions, they, the conditions they provided Australia are the best concessions that they've given in a very protected market, which is agriculture, actually. So that was a big... Um, achievement in this agreement and a full implementation 97% of Australian merchandise exports will enter duty-free to Japan. Now for the Chafta perspective and what makes it quite unique, Chafta is a very pragmatic agreement, Simon. It runs through 17 chapters, it has set out rules which liberalize trade and investment and services, which are the the constituents of modern free trade agreements. It also has six side letters, two memorandums of understanding rather evolve about investment facilitation and the work and holiday visa arrangements and a cooperative side letter on traditional Chinese medicine services. If you look at Chafta, it's around a thousand pages document. It has most of them is uh, tariff schedules, so it could be quite daunting to look at the document per se. But China is offering Australia and agreed to provide us what we call the most favored nation status. This is quite paramount, which is, means that if China enters to a free trade agreement with other nation or a regional trade agreement, meaning with more countries, that provides a better condition to any of the aspects of Chafta, we will keep up. Those conditions will be also provided to Australia, which hasn't been um, provided by China to any other trade partner before. Now, Chafta is innovative. Chafta provides a big landscape for our services, which accounts for up to 70% of our economy. And also beyond the trade aspect, which is extremely important, it's opening future for collaboration between both our complementary economies. Now in the innovative side of Chafta, it has procedural and regulatory controls, including the technical barriers to trade, rules of origins, IP, e-commerce, and other aspects that were not present in any other free trade agreement before, and also established institutional institutional provisions, such as setting a free trade agreement joint commission and a dispute settlement. So that is quite unique in itself. Now from the service perspective, which is quite a key sector for our economy, Australia is the first country to provide China with commitments on a negative list approach. And the key sectors that are benefiting from Chafta are legal services. Now Australian firms can provide their legal services, not only in Australian, but also Chinese law, when they are set in the Shanghai free trade zone, which is quite unique. In education, which is quite a big, uh, of one of our biggest exports and service sector, we benefit from Chinese student intake. I work in the Sydney, the University of Sydney Business School, and we have 
a good pool of our international students coming from China. And now more and more of our providers are listed in the government website where tertiary providers that are recommended can enlist their services. Financial services get a lot of benefits and market access as well. They can own up to 49% on when they establish joint ventures with future companies being them banks or insurance. And from the tourism, they can sell tourism, tourism services, but also Australian companies can invest in construction and building and operation of hotels and restaurants in China. And finally, from healthcare, Australian firms can establish and operate fully wholly owned hospitals and aged care facilities, which is quite unique. We know from the trade side, which is the bit that has a lot of um, um, cover in the media, 86% of Australian goods um, enter duty-free from the implementation of JAFTA, and this will increase up to 96% by 2019 and 100% on full implementation of JAFTA. Now we can we know Simon a lot of coverage in media about agribusiness and agriculture and how our businesses are entering with much better conditions to the Chinese market. So those in a snapshot are some of the key features of Chafta. Well, you've spoken a lot about the positive aspects of Chafta, how it enables businesses to gain greater market access to the Chinese market, um, reduction of tariffs and some of those non-tariff barriers as well. I'd like to ask you a question about some of the controversies that surrounded CHAFTA when it was introduced. So a lot of the media coverage at the time claimed that CHAFTA, for example, would enable a large number of jobs to be offered to Chinese nationals over Australians, and that parts of CHAFTA would actually threaten Australian sovereignty, for example. So in your view, were any of these concerns justified? And if they were justified, have they been addressed um, in subsequent negotiations? That's a big question. <laughs> um, yes, there was some controversy about labor imports and about direct investment when Chafta came in force and it was a later stage of the negotiation. This hasn't been the case with other free trade agreements. Now, the points of labor imports and direct investment have been resolved with an exchange of letters on labor issues and a set of investment regulations with stricter requirements for Chinese state-owned enterprise in particular. Now, I believe that those concerns were not general concerns against Chafta, but they were more particular concerns raised by trade unions and on the basis of security concerns that were um, raised. And these issues will definitely be renegotiated in the next round of revisions mm -hmm. of Chapter. From the Chapter perspective, in Chapter Ten, you can you can see the provisions around movement of natural persons and establish very clearly the provisions around that. And if I may link um, my views with the UTS Agri report that was launched a couple of weeks ago, um, talking about I think the name was "Do the claims stack up?" Yeah. Australia Talks China, there is really concrete and specific data on the number of actual um, 457 Chinese uh, workers that have entered Australia. Um, the data that uh, is provided shows that there is not any type of steep increase that will justify those concerns. So my perspective will be that these claims need to be backed by data and that data is available in that report, which mm. obviously I will invite our listeners to to look at because it provides a really interesting approach to these issues. So what has your research actually revealed 
about Australian firms' uptake of chapter. Have they been keen to learn more about it, um, take advantage of some of the benefits that chapter offers? What are some of the challenges associated with chapter and business uptake? So to the first part of your question on business uptake, um, uptake or um, you could you will look in the literature and in reports, they use the term utilization. So utilization of free trade has been a very much research as topic, scholarly and in the literature, in media and government reports and so on. Now, this is an, an interesting discussion because utilization or the incidence of use of free trade is related to macro effects of tariffs, actually, not how the firms react or behave around free trade agreements. So they, they related to CHAFTA, there was a report um, by PwC commissioned by the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade that revealed that there is a very high utilization rate around 85%, 85%. But if you look at different pieces of information from past reports from the Economic Intelligence Unit in 2014 or literature or ECA report, the Export Council of Australia, they're telling a different story. Actually, they revealed that the uptake of FTA is actually low. And this could be related to, in answering the second part of your question, the challenges. Actually, what are the challenges that firms face? Firms face challenges that drain from first the increasing transaction costs that firms have to incur on if they want to leverage on the tariff reduction. These uh, provisions are not automatic. So firms that want to take advantage of FDAs need to incur in a series of administrative procedures that imply first reviewing if their good is actually tariff exempt and if so, how, get the certificate of origin from the, the body chambers of commerce or other that will certify that's an Australian good and really going through a process that if they don't have the knowledge um, and the know-how of how it proceeds, it could be quite lengthy and quite daunting. Also, it incurs for the firm a cost associated to that. There's also difficulty understanding and making sense of the legal text, right? I mentioned before, it's around a 1,000 page text. And if you are not a, a legal expert, you will need the assistance of someone to clarify certain aspects. And also Australia is signatory, as I mentioned before, to 10 free trade agreements. And each free trade agreement established independent and individual conditions for the firm. So there could be an overlapping of tariffs and provisions that make it hard for firms to navigate through. Firms will also have to tailor or adapt their products to the market, right? Because there are certain conditions and phytosanitary conditions among uh, um, labeling issues and others that firms have to convey. So they will have to incur in the cost of transforming their goods. Firms need to also account for what we call the non-tariff barriers to trade, which could hinder how they expand. So goods could be stopped in customs, it could be different entry requirements depending on the port of entry and so on. So there are a fair bit of challenges in this very comprehensive and interesting framework, which could um, lead firms actually to not take the advantage of the free trade and reflect these relatively lower utilization rates. So I might wrap things up by asking what your thoughts are on Chapter's future. So where do we go from here? What do you think the next step should be in improving Chapter? A big question again. We know that the three-year um, anniversary, let's say, of Chapter is coming in the 20th of December. So we will see some movement around a renegotiation of specific 
uh, aspects, particularly foreign direct investment and the reduction of non-tariff barriers to trade. And this this will definitely impact how Chafta moves forward. Another thing that I think it's really important is more more research and understanding, like the one I'm conducting, where I'm trying to understand from the firm's behavior if and so why they are behaving differently. Are they more keen to enter the Chinese market through a partner, a joint venture, an alliance, or are they reframing for it? Is it faster? Is it slower? We need to really capture the reality for the firms, and that would definitely enrich the policy perspective and also how industry associations can support our firms, our businesses. So I think it's an exciting um, route ahead, not except of challenge, but it's definitely something that we'll see unfolding and developing on the coming months and years. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Tamara. I think you've given our audience a really good overview of Chapter's origins, um, what it entails, and perhaps what can be done to improve the agreement future. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Ima. If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe to the ACRI podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud, or listen to all episodes on our website, australiachinarelations.org. There you'll also find out more about ACRI's research and events. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, at ACRI underscore UTS, and on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening. Thank you.